1516, Johann Tetzel was commissioned to sell indulgences. These Pope-approved um, get-out-of-purgatory-free uh, certificates, except it really wasn't free, and that was the whole point. He would sell the indulgences, and uh, by so doing, money would come into the coffers so that the uh, St. Peter's Basilica in Rome could be built. Now, the key for these indulgences to be effective is that the Christian had to be uncertain about his status before God. He had to rely upon his own good works because we all know that we can never measure up to the holiness of God. So this was key. Personal merit was something that they, they needed to lean on. Maybe some of us are here this evening thinking that if we worship the Lord in the morning and in the evening, maybe the Astros will win a, a World Series game. It's that sort of thing. Now, the glory of the 16th century Protestant Reformation was the recovery of the biblical teaching of justification by faith alone. And this was based, of course, on this great, ex this great exchange that takes place on the cross, where, uh, as the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This great exchange where the, our sin is imputed, it, it's credited to Christ, and his righteousness in turn is imputed to us. It's a marvelous thing. And the instrument of this justification is faith, not our works. Because the ground is the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. So that's the glory of the 16th century Protestant Reformation, justification by faith alone. The heart of the 16th century Protestant Reformation was the issue of authority. The idea that Scripture alone is our normative rule of faith and practice. That in it is contained what man is to believe concerning God and the duty that God requires of man. In fact, that's why we believe justification by faith alone, because it's the clear teaching of the Bible. Even as Jesus reminds us in John 6, 63, where he says that it is the Spirit who gives life, that the flesh availeth for nothing. So if the heart of the Reformation is authority and the glory of the Reformation is justification, the crown of the Reformation is assurance. That the Christian can rest in the redemption purchased by Christ. And this, of course, is over against what the Council of Trent, reacting to the Protestant Reformation, would come to teach. They would say that if anyone saith that he will for certain of an absolute and infallible certainty have that great gift of perseverance unto the end, unless he has learned this by special revelation, and here they don't mean through Scripture, they mean by direct communication from God, let him be anathema. That is to say, if you as a Christian say, I have assurance of salvation, then Rome says you're accursed. Well, 1 Peter 1, 
verses 3 to 5 tell us in no uncertain terms that the Christian can indeed enjoy assurance. That his salvation, and indeed the Christian himself, is secure. That there's no room for anxiety. That there's every reason to have confidence. So let's turn now to this text, 1 Peter chapter 1. I'll read verses 3 to 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is the word of the Lord. Now, according to this text, again, we can be certain of our salvation if indeed we are in Jesus Christ. We have a living hope, Peter says. And we're going to look at this truth as we look at three points that come from our text. Number one, we'll look at the giver of our hope. Number two, the guarantor of our hope. And number three, the guardian of our hope. So let's look at this first point, the giver of our hope. Now, 1 Peter is written by the Apostle from Rome to Christians in Asia Minor, to Christians both Jewish and Gentile. These are Christians that had been exiled from their hometowns, very likely from Rome itself. And they were being persecuted for their faith. They had experienced great material loss and uh, were being shunned by friends and family. They were being slandered. They were being ostracized on account of their faith. They were really suffering. And yet Peter begins this letter by writing, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Despite the circumstances, Peter blesses God. This is a great lesson for us. His audience is disoriented and distressed. So Peter orients them. Even that word, orient, helps us to understand what Peter is doing here. The orient, of course, is where the sun rises, where the light comes from, where direction is given. Well, Peter points the creature to the creator. He points Christians to their heavenly father. He gives Christians their bearings. He reminds them of their purpose, right? What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Christians know what our purpose is. We don't have to wonder about that. And Peter reminds his audience and reminds us that their purpose is to glorify God in every and all circumstances. And it is good for us to be reminded of this. Peter continues in verse 3, According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Notice, first of all, that by today's standards, this is a strange uh, way to begin a letter um, to to a suffering audience. Again, Peter writes about God's mercy, even though they are suffering. In other words, he's telling these Christians, don't think of yourself primarily as victims. You are recipients of mercy, of the greatest mercy anyone can hope for. 
Their burdens are actually evidence of their blessing, according to the apostle. Now we might hear echoes here of Jesus' own words in the Beatitudes. In Matthew 5, verse 10, where he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Second thing to notice here is that the blessedness of the Christian, whatever that may look like, is not because of any inherent worthiness in the Christian. It's according to God's great mercy. It's grace. This is why Peter is going to speak about an inheritance. An inheritance is not something that we ourselves earn. It's given to us. Grace is in view. You see, Christians are not more deserving than other people or more kind inherently than other people or more gentle or more intelligent for that matter. No, not even better looking. It's all mercy. It's all mercy. Now listen, the the audience that Peter is writing to here was really suffering. And all suffering causes grief, to be sure. But suffering for the Christian, in particular suffering on account of their faith, on account of their commitment to Jesus Christ, can actually lead to gratitude, as strange as that may seem to the world. In 1527, Martin Luther became very ill and was close to dying. He really thought that he was going to die. And he was very grieved by this, not because he was going to die, but because he believed that he had not been deemed worthy of martyrdom. That suffering in that way for Christ was something that you could actually be thankful for. That's a strange thing for many of us today, although not for Christians around the world, many of whom are suffering in that very manner. The Christian's persecution is evidence of his or her privilege, the privilege of being chosen by God, of being adopted into his family, of bearing his name. Again, in verse 3, we read, according to his great mercy, he has invited us to be born again to a living hope. No, that's not what it says, right? He has helped us to be born again to a living hope? No. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Literally, he has regenerated us. He's caused us to be born again. New Testament scholar Karen Jobes writes, it is difficult to imagine a more sweeping concept than a new birth. Just as people receive their ethnic identity, their citizenship, their socioeconomic class, and their innate potentialities from their biological parents, Christians have a new identity and a new citizenship that redefines their relationship with society and transforms their identity and character. Now, some Christians are confused about what their identity might be. Christian, your identity is new creation in Christ. What a gift! What a privilege. The Christian has the same ability to cause his spiritual birth as he does his physical birth. Namely, none. Here's the point. God is sovereign over our physical reality and over our spiritual reality. He causes us 
to be born again. You see, the love of God for his people is a compelling love. And that's a mercy. Again, verse 3. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. God is the giver of our hope. The Father is the source of our blessing, according to Peter. In Job 27.8, we read that the hope of uh, the godless is futile because they are cut off from God, Job says. This is why so many people across all socioeconomic strata are entertaining themselves numb, are distracting themselves numb, are medicating themselselves dumb, uh, dumb, numb and dumb, drinking themselves dumb for sure. Why? Because hope without God is not enduring. It is vain. It is impotent. It is dead. But our hope is a living hope because its source and anchor is the living God. He is the giver of our hope, which brings us to the second point, the guarantor of our hope. Look at verse 3 again. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The centrality of the person of Jesus Christ in Peter's thinking is evidenced by the fact that Peter mentions Jesus Christ by name four times in the first three verses of this letter. God is the giver of our hope, the source of every good and perfect gift, and the one to whom we can cry, Abba, Father. But the reason why we can do this, the reason why we can refer to God as our Father is precisely because he is the God and Father of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Christ is central to our state of blessedness as Christians. I said earlier that our hope is a living hope because its source and anchor is the living God. But our hope is also a living hope because its guarantor is the risen Savior, the one who died and yet lives. You see, it's not just the person of Jesus Christ that is at the center of our hope. It is also the work of Jesus Christ. Peter witnessed Jesus' arrest and his torture and his crucifixion and very likely his death. But then Peter witnessed the empty tomb. He saw that though he had died, he was alive. And because our Lord lives, our hope is a living hope. Christian, don't forget this. Our hope rests not on the report of the resurrection, but on the reality of the resurrection. It's not simply the message. It's the matter. It's not simply the story. It's the substance. Look at what Paul writes in Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. 
You see, because Christ really was raised from the dead, we too shall rise. Christ's resurrection in the past anchors our present living hope in a certain future without pain, without tears, and without death. When the Israelites wandered in the wilderness, they were strangers and aliens. They were pilgrims sustained by God's promise. And that is the picture of God's people today. That's the picture of God's people in the world. We too are strangers and aliens. We too are sustained by the living hope that is grounded on the cross and whose guarantor is the risen Savior. Dr. Edmund Clowney puts it this way. Our hope is anchored in the past. Jesus rose. Our hope remains in the present. Jesus lives. Our hope is completed in the future. Jesus is coming. How privileged are God's people. Even if the world around us mocks us, slanders us, ostracizes us, and despises us on account of our faith, even if people shun us because of our relationship to Christ, even if teachers and fellow students fire, uh, fire their, their worst darts against us, even if they question us, even if they mock us, even if they make fun of us, even if our employer terminates us, even if the culture cancels us because of our obedience to God's word, nevertheless, our lives have a purpose and a sure reward. As Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 to 9, we may be afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Because you see, the Father is the giver of our living hope. We may be strangers and aliens in this world, but as Paul reminds us in Ephesians 2.12, we are no longer separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's not us anymore. No, we have a living hope. And Christ is its guarantor through the fact of the resurrection. Ah, but can this hope be lost? Is this most splendid gift purchased by Christ's blood? Precious to be sure, but perishable. Is it flawless, but fragile? Is it valuable, but vanishing? In other words, having received this hope from God himself, Christ guaranteeing its sufficiency, is it up to you now to keep it, to hold on to it? To answer this question, let's look at our third and final point. The guardian of our hope. Look at verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. 
when, Israelites, uh, when the Israelites thought about God's covenant promises to them, when they thought about their inheritance, they thought primarily of land and seed. They thought of home and family. Homeland and family. After all, they were part of God's household. It's not a bad way to think about it. But even though the promise was much greater than this, these concepts were, was for them paradigmatic. The blessing was expressed in worldly terms. The focus was on the here and now. The problem with that, of course, is that the here and now, and every aspect of the here and now, is perishable. If you're thinking about seed, people die. We know that. It can be defiled. I mean, the land itself of Israel was defiled many times. Whether it was the Assyrians coming in, or the Babylonians, or the Persians, or the Greeks, or the Romans. It was defiled time and again. And of course, the hope itself was a fading hope if it depended on these material blessings. So the people did lose hope. And they turn to other gods time and again. Many of the divisions afflicting our society today stem from the fact that society's hope is also worldly, is materialistic, through and through. We focus on what others have and what we don't have. And that's how we measure whether or not we have a right to be happy. This is why marketing works. So we're filled with anxiety because the objects of our desire are perishable, corruptible, and fading. So we need to take hold of these things, and we need to consume them, and we're on the clock. But the result is that instead we are fueled by greed and filled with envy around the clock. Greed and envy take hold of us and consume us, because that's the very nature of an earthly hope. Peter's audience had lost their homes, had lost their family ties. They were suffering. So he reminds them and he reminds us, he reminds Christians that our inheritance is not earthly, but heavenly. He says that it is kept in heaven for us. It is guarded in heaven for us. In other words, all may be lost here, but the inheritance of the Christian is intact. It's imperishable, he says. That is to say, death and decay can't touch it. It's undefiled. Corruption and sin can't pollute it. It's unfading. It is impervious to the ravages of time. Glorious are the gifts granted by God the Father to his children. Sure is the salvation secured by the Son for his church. Impregnable is the inheritance imputed to our heavenly account. Yet, all this would provide little comfort if we ourselves could be lost. That is to say, maybe the inheritance cannot be touched, but can we be lost? Again, let's read now verses 4 and 5. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, 
who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Dear Christian, if Christ really is your Lord, if you are united to him by a spirit-wrought faith, then you don't have to live in fear of losing your salvation. You can and you should have assurance. It is a blessed gift from God to his people. According to verse 5, we are so secure. The Christian is so secure. You, who are united to Christ by faith, you are so secure in your inheritance that you yourselves are guarded by God's power through faith. You're guarded by God's power through faith. You're guarded, kept, protected, shielded. You can use this word of someone who is held prisoner. It carries a sense of being held in protective custody. Edmund Clowney comments, not only is our inheritance kept for us, we are kept for our inheritance. The wonder of our hope is that the same power of God that keeps our inheritance also keeps us. God has put us under arrest, as it were, to keep us safe for his day. Pilgrims we may be, but the cloud of God's power that leads us in the way becomes a wall of fire about us. This last image of the wall and the fire is instructive for us. It reminds us that God's Spirit himself guides and guards us. In Isaiah 63, 11, we read, Then he remembered the days of old, of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them out of the sea with the shepherds of the flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit? That pillar of cloud by day, and that pillar of fire by night, which guided and guarded God's people in their pilgrimage through the wilderness, is the same Holy Spirit that guides us to Christ today by causing us to be born again. Is the same Holy Spirit who guards us until the last day by sealing us. Look at what Paul writes in Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14. In him you also... When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So, according to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 5, salvation is thoroughly Trinitarian. The Father is its source, the Son is our Savior. And the Spirit is our sustainer. The Father is the giver, the Son is the guarantor, and the Spirit is our guard. And not just the Spirit, but Jesus tells us in John 10 that He holds His sheep in His hand. And that the Father holds His sheep in His hand. So that no one and nothing, no power of hell, no scheme of man, the song would say, can snatch us from His hand. The Council of Trent pronounced a curse against those who would claim to be certain of their salvation. 
But dear Christian, when the triune God of Scripture claims you, you can be certain that you and your inheritance are forever secure. If God possesses you, then you possess a blessed assurance. You need not do anything to secure it. God's power guards it. It is guarded through faith precisely because faith is not our achievement. Dr. Clowney observes that faith is trust in the sufficiency of Christ's achievement. Even our enduring faith itself is secured by God. The author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 12 too that Jesus is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Karen Job's comments, paradoxically, it is the believer's faith in Christ that has put them in jeopardy with respect to their society. But it is that very faith in Christ that identifies them as legitimate heirs whom God powerfully protects. Your blessed assurance, dear Christian, has a firm foundation. Your salvation and reward are ready to be revealed in the last time. It's ready to be revealed. There's nothing more to do. There's nothing that you can add to it. I said earlier that 1527 was a difficult year for Martin Luther. The fearless reformer uh, was under constant stress, of course, and had been for years by this point. There was much conflict that he was dealing with. There was even persecution that he was experiencing, not to mention his positive work of preaching, of teaching, of translating, of composing songs and hymns, of shepherding the church. And all this took a toll on his health. So he began to experience dizziness. He had fainting spells. Even as he was preaching, he had to stop on several occasions. He was so weak that he really believed that he was about to die. And then he had bouts on top of that of severe depression. And then as if this weren't enough, the Black Plague swept through Europe. And though many fled the city, Luther, together with his pregnant wife and their one-year-old son, stayed and converted their home into a hospital to treat the people, to help. And this caused his son to become ill, and he almost died as a result. And amid these trials, Luther wrote his most famous hymn, what is known as the Battle Hymn of the Reformation, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. We sang it this morning here in this church, and I'm sure probably not just in this church, uh, even in the other churches that join us here this evening. Uh, you may have sang it today or recently. It is a wonderful hymn. A mighty fortress is our God. It is inspired by Psalm 46, and it is meant to encourage Christians to take comfort in their assurance regardless of circumstances. Look at what the final stanza says. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth, that truth that says that God guards your very soul, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a wonderful gift is not just our salvation, but also 
our blessed assurance. That the Christian in this life, being united to Christ by faith, can rest in that living hope that is kept in heaven, imperishable, undefiled, unfading. And that not just that inheritance, but we ourselves who are united to Christ by faith are guarded by your power. Oh Lord, what wonderful assurance. I pray that those of us who are here who know you may lean on that assurance. That regardless of the circumstances that we may be encountering in our lives, how difficult they may be, or even when we encounter great joy, joy which can be fleeting, Father, may that blessed assurance be our living hope. And Father, if there are those here this evening with us who don't know you, Heavenly Father, may your Spirit cause them to be born again, that they may receive the faith to believe, eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to understand that Jesus Christ is the sufficient, all-powerful Savior of the world. May they turn to him, even as we have turned to him by faith. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.